0: Today's sermon text is Luke 2, verses 22 through 40. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was eighty-four. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This is God's Word.
1: Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you today. Um, We meet two people in this text this morning uh, Simeon and Anna. And these are two people who are advanced in age, they've been around for a long time. And they also have one singular desire, and that is to see Simeon, to lay his eyes on the face of the Messiah. And Anna, we see this account ending with her rejoicing, leaving that space in the temple to go and interact, apparently with a group of friends that she has who have also been longing for the Messiah to come and redeem Israel. And uh, man, we see this incredible account take place in the temple. We meet Mary and Joseph who are coming to the temple for uh, the purification of Mary. Uh, The Old Covenant says that when a woman gives birth, that she's ritually unclean for a period of time. And so we see that purity, uh, those purity rites. uh, We read about that here, and we also read about the presentation of the new baby. And involved in these worshipful practices was also the tradition and the command to offer five shekels of silver and um, and also to bring a lamb and a turtle dove, a lamb and a turtle dove. And it's interesting because the scriptures make an allowance for people who are really poor. And it says that for those people who are really poor and cannot afford a lamb, they can bring two turtle doves instead. Instead of just one turtle dove and a lamb, they can bring two turtle doves. And so this gives us, some understanding, some insight into the economic situation of Jesus' his family, the family that he grew up in. They were very, very poor, very destitute, and uh, very needy. Like many people in Israel were back then, not only were they responsible to uh, tithe and contribute to the temple system, but they were also taxed heavily by Rome. And so um, these people were, just by virtue of tax taxation, uh, destitute. And then, of course, they're living in a Roman Empire controlling uh, Israel at this time that is not very merciful and not very, very kind. Um, And that's really what I want to focus on today. Uh, This won't be a traditional Christmas message. I don't know if I've ever preached one of those, but um, uh, I was sitting in the front row this morning before the first service and, um, or before I preached, and my sister started giggling when they got to the part about the, the firstborn male who opens the womb is to be called holy to the Lord, because my mother quoted that verse over me my entire life, and, um, and in my in my moments when I was most stubborn and most wayward, she would point her finger at me, and she would say, you open my womb, and you're holy to the Lord, and I never really got how that connected, but... Um, i um, like, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. I was just there. You know, I didn't, I didn't make, that wasn't my will to make that happen. But, uh, but she quoted that over me my whole life. And, and I really believe that her saying that over me so often shaped inside of me, my identity that I really did belong to God. And in moments when I did not want to follow Jesus, and there were many of those. And it's, honestly, there are times today that it's, it's a struggle. Um, I could not. Walk out from under the gravity of those words that she spoke over me so many times, and uh, if that that maybe maybe you folks who are parents here can can glean something from that as well. Uh, but she quoted that over me a lot, and um, but we also meet two two people, Simeon and Anna, who have this desperate longing inside of them. Uh, Simeon is a man who we have to imagine is advanced in age. By the time we get to the part where he's prophesying, he says, Lord, now you can let me go in peace. And so I guess he's lived for a long time. We don't know how old he was, but he must have been old. And then we come to the story of Anna at the end of this account, and it says that she was at least in her 80s. We're not sure because of the original language if it meant that she lived 84 years after her husband died or she lived 84 years total, but she was obviously an aged woman, and yet both of them shared a passion. Simeon had to know that before he died that the Messiah had come to console Israel, to console Israel, the consolation of Israel. That's a a really powerful word. That says a lot. When When I first rubbed up against that phrase, the consolation of Israel, as I was preparing this over the last couple of weeks, I felt like that word demanded that I jump into Simeon's story and figure out what it was that shaped that singular desire to be consoled by God, to meet the Messiah? What was it that shaped the singular desire that Anna had to know that the Messiah had finally, finally come? And so I want to take a few moments and talk about their lives before jesus now i don 't know Simeon and Anna; there are no books about them or records of them. They are two uh, obscure people in history, uh, people that really history was ready to forget all about until Joseph and Mary brought the Messiah into the temple on that day and um, And I, what I want to do is take a few moments and talk about the life that they would have known leading up to Jesus, living as Israelites in Palestine. And Palestine was the name assigned to that region by Rome because it was a Roman province. Rome occupied Palestine. It was not... Israel at this point was not a sovereign nation. Israel had no rights over itself. Israel uh, was... uh, was a part of the Roman Empire, belonged to Rome. It was basically one of the states of Rome. And so I want to take a moment. There's a slide I put together, and you guys know I like slides. And um, and I love, like, timelines and all that kind of stuff because for so long growing up in the church, I would look at the Bible, and I had no clue what I was reading. Who were the Ephraimites? I had no idea who those people were. Uh, Who were the Assyrians? And learning more about the Bible has brought the Bible alive to me. And uh, and I can honestly say that if I wasn't in this line of work and I was doing maybe what you did for a living, I would still have this same hunger to know these things because I just want to know what I'm reading. I want to know what I'm interacting with. And so I want to briefly just explain what's going on before you here. If you know history really well, if you're a theologically uh, motivated person... Um, Endure this for a moment, because these are just general dates that I'm giving here, and general things. There's a lot that I'm skipping here, but if you if if you know anything about Scripture, back about a thousand years before Jesus, that's where you can put a guy named David, King David. If you ever read like the, a lot of the Psalms, the life of David, and like in um, the books that Samuel wrote, you can read you could read about him. And this is a thousand years before Jesus. And there was this man named Samuel who anointed David. And his predecessor he anointed, who was Saul. And then David's son uh, was a man named Solomon. And Solomon uh, was was this interesting uh, polarizing figure because he's known so gloriously as leading the Israelite kingdom in its glory days. Yet Solomon also compromised severely, married hundreds Hundreds of foreign women who caused his heart to, uh, to, to come away from God. And he embraced idol worship and uh, all these things. And that, and that really set the stage for the next several hundred years of Israelite history. And over the next several hundred years, right after Solomon's reign, the Israelite kingdom split in two. You had the northern portion, which is Israel, the southern portion, which is Judah. And each of those kingdoms had kings, and they each had their own temple. And it was those kings, most of those kings, the vast majority of those kings, about 20-something, give or take a few in the northern kingdom, and about 20-something, give or take a few in the southern kingdom, almost all of them defied God's commands, embraced idolatrous worship, walked away from God, and God warned them hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, if you do that, then I'm going to punish you. And that led to uh, the exile of Israel. And about 300 years, i sorry, about 700 and so years before Jesus, uh, the Assyrians invaded Israel, the northern kingdom, obliterated it. About 100 years after that, in the next century, Babylon, they were the next empire that came along after Assyria. They entered into the southern kingdom, Judah, and obliterated it and carried away many of the Jews into captivity in exile in Babylon. And those Jews were there for 70 years, just as the prophet Jeremiah had prophesied before that. They were finally allowed to return home to rebuild Israel, but Israel did not have its former glory. It did not have its former glory. As a matter of fact, when they rebuilt the temple, there were old folks who were there who remembered the first temple, Solomon's temple, and they wept on the day of the dedication. The young people are all excited and the old folks who are there are weeping because it did not touch the former glory that Solomon's temple had. And this led to Israel being sort of flying under the radar for a few hundred years. They just sort of existed as sort of a a loose affiliation, a confederation of tribes and and ethnic groups and, and descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then about 330 years before Jesus, came the juggernaut, which was Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great conquered all of the the Middle East, all the way up into India, and he probably would have gone farther than that had he not died at such a young age. And uh, he conquered Palestine. He conquered Palestine. And for a while, Israel was able to live under Greek rule. Alexander the Great was a Greek. They were able to live under Greek rule until... About 167, this is about, this is about 167 years before Jesus. And it was then that a Greek emperor of the Seleucid kingdom, one of the Greek kingdoms, emerged and his name was Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. He was called by the Jews Antiochus the Madman. And the reason they called him this because he was a murderous, bloodthirsty dictator. And when he came in and, and took leadership over Israel, he enforced a Greek way of life that the Jews had to submit to. And so they did things such as this. And pardon, this is a little graphic, but it's, it's historical fact. Uh, because the Greeks had such a high value on sporting events, and because they also had such a high value of the glory of the human body, they would, they would have sporting events often where people would compete in the nude. And because Jews were considered to be deformed because of their circumcision, Jewish boys, they went through the painful surgery, surgical process of a reverse circumcision so that they could compete in these games, in these Greek games. It was awful. There are n- a number of stories of, of uh, Antiochus having an elderly priest uh flogged to death because he would not bow down to the Greek gods of Zeus and other gods. And to be flogged back then, as it was in Jesus' day, because Jesus was also flogged, they would have this uh, rope or this whip of some sort with pieces of glass and bone and rock embedded in this whip, and they would they would flog people, they would whip people, and they beat this elderly priest to death. This is the same sort of whip that Jesus experienced, the 39 lashes when he was suffering uh, before he was crucified. Um, there are a number of stories of just bloodthirsty uh, insanity under Antiochus. But it all came to a head in 167 when he entered into the temple and went into the most holy place, or the holy of holies as, we, as we've come to know it. And he had a pig and he sacrificed a pig to the god Zeus on the altar and smeared this pig's blood all over the sanctuary. And there were a number of Jews who had had enough. And there was this one particular family called the Hasmoneans or the Maccabeans, and the Maccabeans revolted against Antiochus in a series of battles, drove him out of Israel. They drove him out of Israel. As a matter of fact, there is a holiday that the Jews celebrate leading uh, in, the time of, in the Christmas season called Hanukkah. Uh, there's, a, there's a little girl that we pick up every morning on the way to school. She's a little Jewish girl and uh, one, of, one of my little Claire's friends. And uh, every morning over the last uh, couple of weeks, she got in the car because it was during those eight days that she would get a gift every day. And man, she got hooked up with some good stuff. I mean, televisions and Mac computers. I'm like, man, I should be a Jew. I'm kidding. No, I shouldn't do that. But uh, uh, but uh, so, so they still celebrate that day thousands of years later commemorating Israel's liberation from the Greeks it was about a hundred years later a hundred years of Israel enjoying relative sovereignty in the year AD BC 67 BC so this would have been about six or seven decades before or several decades pardon me before Jesus yeah Six or seven decades, I'm getting my BC and AD backwards, about six or seven decades before Jesus, that uh, Rome and the new uh, juggernaut rolled into town, and the Jews had no chance to defend themselves against Rome. Rome was an advanced military, they had no way of defending themselves, and Rome took over. And immediately the Jews began to experience the torture and the horror that Rome would bring. Now, at this time, Simeon and Anna, are alive. Simeon and Anna are young people. Maybe they're teenagers, maybe they're toddlers, maybe they're in their 20s. We don't know, but they were, at this time, they were, very, they were young, but they were alive, and they would have known what it would have been like. They would have remembered really well the horrors that their nation, their countrymen, their people experienced at the end of a Roman dagger. And uh, as a matter of fact, there's a, a quote I found That uh, Herod, if anybody in here heard of Herod, uh, Herod the Great looked at a general and asked him this question as Rome was on a murderous rampage through Israel and Herod asked this question to one of the Roman generals. He said this, would the Romans deprive the city of all its inhabitants and possessions and leave me as a king of the wilderness? That's what he said. Um, There's a theologian named William Barclay, he said it this way, he said, it is the simple historical fact that in the 30 years from 67 to 37 BC, just 30 years during the time that Simeon and Anna lived, before the emergence of Herod the Great, that no fewer than 150,000 Jews perished in Palestine because of revolutionary uprisings. The Jews could not tolerate being the people of God called by God to bring the blessings of Abraham to every ethnic group in the world and yet be bullied for generations and generations by one wicked empire after the next. As a matter of fact, it was during the years leading up this time, the years leading up to this time that this idea was birthed at a grassroots level in Judaism. And it's called, often referred to as the messianic woes or the pangs of the Messiah. It's this idea that uh, while the Israelites in these years leading up to the coming of Jesus, while the Israelites were suffering under so much hardship and so much brutality, there was this idea that the years leading up to the coming of the Messiah are going to be horrid and painful and treacherous. But at the end of those years, when the, when the Messiah's sufferings are filled up, so to speak, the Messiah will come and console and redeem and deliver Israel. There was a lot of belief that around this time when things got so horrific in Israel that the Messiah was about to come. And because of that, there were many false messiahs who began to rise up and lead these insurgent riots against Rome. And Rome would mercilessly slaughter everyone who participated in this. Um, I know what you're thinking. Typical Christmas message. Um, And um, so you think think about it this way. There were, there were about 2 million Jews living in Palestine at about this time. About 2 million Jews. If 150,000 men, probably not counting women and children, if 150,000 men are killed, what percentage of that is that of the two, of the 2 million Jews? What about 7.5%, something like that? 7, 8%, 5, 6, 7%? Somewhere in there? If 100,000... of a million that means it's 5% of 2 million and then 50,000 my math ends there so we're talking at least 5% let's just say, for grin's sake it's 5% of their population is killed by the Romans just to give some perspective if 5% of the American population died that would mean in a 30 year period almost 18 million Americans would die what Impact would that have on our psyche as Americans? If over a 30-year period, let's say from 1985, when Back to the Future came out, to 2000, to what 2000? What's, what's 30 years from there? 2015. Okay, all right. I escaped math. Um, so 2015. Let's say from back to from 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 the, by the time we should have had floating skateboards and flying cars in that time, 18 million people died in America. Now think about how horrific 9-11 was when 3,000 people died. If you have any age in this room, and I'm way too young to remember the Vietnam War. I mean, I'm only 22, but, uh, uh, but if you remember the Vietnam War, I was actually born the final year of the Vietnam War when we were pulling out of Vietnam. And, uh, I remember growing up when the Vietnam War had left cast such a shadow over the psyche of America because it was, it was a defeat. And not only a defeat, but there were so many soldiers who were, um, uh, who were ridiculed and condemned because of their participation in this. And it just left this dark, dark shadow over America. And we, we, we we talked about how many people died in the Vietnam War. There were, there were, relatively speaking, there were only about 50 to 60,000 people that died in the Vietnam War, 50 to 60,000 Americans. What if 18 million Americans died in a 30 year period? What would that do to us as a country? Simeon and Anna experienced this. They saw this. I was reading a book recently and there was a man who said he couldn't relate to Jews and then he met his first Jewish friend when he was a young man and that Jewish friend began to tell him about the 27 members of his family that died in the Holocaust during World War II. Twenty-seven members of his family died a brutal death. That'll, That'll do something to you. I've never experienced that, so I don't know what. But that'll do something to you, and it will do something to a country. And you can imagine the amplification of those woes, those pangs, where people are desperate to see the coming of the Messiah. And certainly, that's what we're seeing at least to some degree with Simeon and Anna. They are desperate that the Messiah would come and deliver their nation. Desperate. There were so many terrible things that happened. Uh, To add insult to injury, uh, just about 25 years before Jesus, there was an earthquake in Palestine. Killed 31,000 people. 31,000 people. Uh, just about the time Jesus was born, around 4 BC, they, they, we don't know exactly when, but around 4 BC, there was a group of insurgent Jews who stormed a, a Roman military stockade in the, in the area of Galilee, actually not far from Jesus' hometown. It was a little place called Sephoris. And they stormed this Roman military blockade, or this Roman military garrison. They took weapons, and then the Romans came in, obliterated this force, uh, this group of people. And in one day, in one day as a result of this, they crucified 2,000 Jews who were operating as insurgents against Rome. Can you imagine that? Walking down the road one day, and 2,000 crosses on the side of the road... 2,000 crosses with people dying. It would have been awful. And so obviously there's this pleading that the Messiah would come, that the Messiah would come. Now, there's, there was a lot of reactions to this. There was, can you imagine how politically tumultuous this time was? I mean, you think about us and, and, and in our country, and I've got to be honest with you, knowing what I know about history and to hear people talk about how bad America is and, and sometimes I get the question, do you think Jesus is about to come back? And I'm like, man, I just, I just wish with all due respect that we knew our history a little bit better because there have been times where the church has suffered awful, awful uh, tragedy. Because of injustice, I think about the time of Nero, who is uh, the emperor during the time of Paul in the early church, and how Nero would take Christians and he would impale them on long stakes of wood and then plant them in his flower beds and light them on fire so that he could see as he walked around his flower beds at night, uh, as he walked around his gardens. I don't mean to be grotesque, but I mean this is real stuff and. If you read the Bible at all, you're going to face real stuff in the Bible. And um, uh, But regardless of, this is an, a sermon about when Jesus is going to come back. But uh, um, Right a little rabbit trail there. But um, um, I need to hit. For my email to Ron this week, but uh, so, we, we, but there were political there were political reactions to this, and uh, there were groups that began to emerge in the years leading up to this that uh, that felt that they had the best way to cope with all of this tragedy and all of this horror, and they had the best way to deal with it head on. And one of those one of those political groups was called the Sadducees. The Sadducees, you can read about these. If you read the Gospels at all, you've probably seen the Sadducees a time or two. What's interesting about the Sadducees is they were responsible for the maintenance of the temple. And yet these guys did not believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in a God who intervened in human affairs. And because of that, because of this fatalism, that once they die, it's all over they began to grow in this belief that, well, you might as well get all you can out of this life now. And so they began to enrich themselves. And they were the elite echelon of Jewish society back then. Well, here's what's interesting. They had a lot to lose. Because the Sadducees, along with the Sanhedrin, they had a deal, sort of a handshake deal with Rome. Rome said, we're going to let you guys act like you're in charge here. We're going to give you a measure of freedom and liberty. But here's the deal. You better tell us if you hear any rumors of insurrection or treason. Because if treason happens again, we are going to come in and we are going to punish you on pain of death. And so they had a lot to lose. Not only were they afraid, not only were they afraid of what might happen to Israel, but they were afraid of losing all the stuff that they had. They had a lot to do. So imagine being a Sadducee and being wealthy and having the anxiety of making sure that Israel did not revolt against Rome. And all of a sudden, yet another Messiah figure comes, and his name is Yeshua Bar Joseph. We know him as Jesus. And Jesus appears to be a revolutionary, and all of a sudden we're like, whoa, we can't listen to this guy, don't listen to him, even though he might be the Messiah, maybe you thought that in the back of your mind, when you got a guy like uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, um, who's the guy that came to him at night? Um, Nicodemus, So (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar, that was a Babylonian emperor. Um, So Nicodemus comes to him at night and says, are you the Messiah or is there someone else? And and how are we going to be born again? How can you be born again? He has this incredible interaction with him, but it's at nighttime. And so there's a lot of pressure. But these Sadducees, these Sadducees were under a lot of anxiety. How can we really follow Jesus and yet lose our wealth and maybe lose our life? A lot of pressure. Then you've got the Pharisee party. And the Pharisee party was like the middle class. These guys felt like the reason God allowed Rome to invade Israel was because Israel was in sin. And if we live ritually pure lives and we become the morality police and we tell everybody else to live ritually pure lives too, then maybe God will come in and he will heal our land and he will deliver us. Maybe he'll deliver us. And so you got these Pharisees. And they they desired the coming of the Messiah. They wanted the coming of the Messiah. But just like the Sadducees, they were super, super cynical. They were so cynical, they couldn't get out of their own way. They couldn't theologically get out of their own way. They were theologically scrupulous. They were brilliant. They were theologians, and yet they were so smart, they could not buy into Jesus and who he was. They were also afraid. They were also afraid. Then you had the zealots. The zealots. The zealots were a party of people who believed in violent insurrection against Rome. They told people, don't you pay taxes to Rome. That's God's money, not, your, not, not Rome's money. They, they, were, they believed in the ethnic cleansing of Israel. They believed that one of the reasons why Israel was suffering the way it was was because of all these Gentiles, these filthy Gentiles that were in Israel. And they believed that there should be an ethnic cleansing. There were even some sects of the, uh, of the zealots who believed, who, who even preached and said that if you marry as a Jew, if you marry a Gentile, you should be lynched and killed. They believed this. It's interesting because you've got people like tax collectors who were Jewish, who were considered traitors, who worked for Rome and fleeced God's people, the Israelites, the Jews, in order to enrich Rome. And they enriched themselves while they were at it. One of Jesus' disciples was a tax collector. His name was Matthew, formerly known as Levi. But Jesus also had another disciple, a guy named Simon. He was a zealot. And isn't it remarkable that two people who are diametrically opposed in terms of political beliefs are able to find unity and brotherhood at the feet of Jesus. That should say something to us about how, and, and prophesy to us, and how politically polarized that we are in our world today, and sadly, how politically polarized we are in the church. When we've got people who can't even be a part of the same community group or go to the same church because of some sort of political squabble we might be having. We are one in Jesus. We are one in Jesus. But these religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they couldn't get out of their own way. The Messiah, the Son of God, is being held up to them by Rome. And they say, rather than him, crucify him, but give us Barabbas. He was a zealot, likely. Barabbas fit in their their theological system. Barabbas made sense. We hate Rome. Barabbas is the kind of guy that could lead us in defeating Rome violently. He might... He's more of a Jew than this Jesus guy is. And unbeknownst to them, they called for the massacre and the killing of the Son of God. Then you've got a group like the Essenes. The Essenes were this very ritually pure group. They were so ritually pure that they wouldn't even... How should I say it? How, how would my kids say this? They wouldn't go number two on the Sabbath. They were that ritually pure. They wouldn't go number two on the Sabbath. And um, I'm just thinking about that time. One of my kids said, I got number three. So I was like, what, what is that? What? 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 <laughs> um, so uh, you, and they were pacifists. They believed also that Israel was being judged and invaded by Rome because of sin. And so they lived ritually pure lives. They were very pure lives. They ate a strict diet. And they lived, they moved, they withdrew from Jewish life. And they moved to the caves in this place outside of the River Jordan. And it was there that they were waiting for the coming of the Messiah. And they thought, if we live pure enough, this will cause the advent or the coming of the Messiah. And he will lead us like Joshua led Israel across the Jordan into Israel. And we will purge Israel from all of its Gentile inhabitants, all the Canaanites. This is their response. And yet, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking to myself, wow, I can really relate to those guys. I can relate to being a Sadducee that's just like, (sighs) forget it. I might as well get as much as I can out of this life. Because life's hard. I can really relate to being a Pharisee. I can really relate to that. Just being sort of on the fence. I want the Messiah to come, but man, politics is going to keep me from really committing to Jesus. I'm cynical, too smart for my own good. Reminds me of the American church. My God, we've had more Bible studies than you could shake a stick at, and we're still wondering, how do we pray? I think about zealots who believed in militant force, who believed in aggression, in bringing about the kingdom of God. I see a lot of parallels in our culture today. And I think about the Essenes. I've wondered which one would I be here. And honestly, I can most relate to the Essenes. Sometimes it's just, and I think a lot of us can, especially in today's culture where we just are tired of people. That's what I hear people say a lot today I'm just sick of people. I'm done with people. I'm done with people. A lot, of people, a lot of people say that. I, I, I can relate to that. Not, not you people, just other other people. Uh, and, uh, and, they, and withdraw withdrawing from society. Go study the Bible somewhere. That would be awesome. Man, it would be great to study the Bible somewhere. Listen to teachings. I almost said teaching tapes. Man, really dated myself there. <laughs> Vietnam. Uh, but uh, uh, And it's in light of this that after Simeon gives this prophecy to Mary, that he pulls her aside and he says, Hey, Kim, I want to tell you something else, though. Um, The Son of God has been appointed for the rising, for the falling, and the rising of many in Israel. To such a degree that it's going to feel like at some point in your life that a sword is going to pierce your soul. There's a cost to fix all this. There's a cost to deliver God's people, and He will pay that cost. We know that cost to be the cross. But typically when the word rise is used in the New Testament, it's speaking of a resurrection. And in the same way that many, Zealots, Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, or other nameless, faceless people who aren't formal member, card-carrying members of a political party, they just can't get past how Jesus doesn't match up to the Messiah that they had in their mind. They're going to stumble over him, and it will lead to their fall. They can't get past how a Messiah that's prophesied in the Old Testament, who is going to bring about the redemption of Israel, the salvation of the Gentiles, and yet the destruction of God's enemies. How can a Messiah like that come saying, Hey, in the context of Israel, which is being, which is occupied by pagan Rome and causes much suffering for your life, here's what I want you to start doing if you're going to be my followers. Here's what my followers look like. We forgive people who abuse us. We love enemies. This is how this messianic revolution is going to begin. It's not going to begin with drawn swords and shields. It's going to begin with love. It's going to begin with peacemaking. And this is why he can say that in Matthew chapter 5, that the spirit-filled, spirit-baptized people who follow him, here's what they look like. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. They are peacemakers. They are meek. They give mercy. I once um, said to the church, I'll say again, what does it look like to give mercy? It's when you give mercy when the person getting it doesn't deserve it. If If you can rationalize the giving of mercy, you don't know what giving mercy feels like. Giving mercy is when everything in you doesn't want to give mercy and that person doesn't deserve mercy. Jesus is my kind of people. Spirit-baptized people who follow me are the people who give mercy. And you got zealots going, what? Are you serious? This is what it looks like to follow me. We'll close with this. What did Simeon say? I want to pull out three ideas here and we'll shut it down. You can go up in presence. All right. I love what he says here in verse 29. He says, You're letting your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. I just want to challenge everybody here with just a thought. Um, Rather than thinking about Jesus in terms of what he can do, why don't we begin with and camp out on the idea of just Jesus. Not what he can do for you, not what you might lose if you follow him, but just Jesus. I remember being a 17-year-old who was had a really hard heart, bitter, angry, full of rage, very sad, almost all the time, lonely. And I came to a place in my life where I prayed this prayer couldn't do it anymore i couldn't live alone i couldn't manage what people thought about me enough i couldn't i, I was just tired i was tired and i prayed a prayer that went something like this jesus i don't want to serve you there are things in this world that are much more appealing to me i would rather do those things i don't want to pray i don't read the bible i don't want to go to church But I cannot do this life alone. I am terrible at doing life. And I need your help. And the one thing that caused me to come to that place was this idea that my folks and my church experience and other godly people sort of just drilled into me that Jesus is beautiful and he's just better. He is superior, he is supreme. And I thought to myself, he has got, if he's the one that made sex, he's got to be better than that. If he's the one that made this world, he's got to be better than anything in this world. And so, God, I don't know what it looks like, it even feels like to really know you, but I just want to know you. I just want to know you. Sometimes I don't pray that prayer, sometimes I pray other things. And I'm not saying it's wrong to ask God for things. We should do that. The scriptures tell us to do that. But I'm talking about our posture in Jesus, rather than what he can give to us. That's not the foundation of our salvation. The foundation of our salvation is the same passion that Simeon had. Just let me look at Jesus. Just let my eyes feast on the beauty of Jesus, the Messiah. That's all the hope that I need. And so, I just want to tell you, Jesus is salvation. Jesus is Great preacher once said, named John Piper: "Jesus is the gospel. God is the gospel. Don't forget that. It's not about what we can get out of Him. It's not about how we can leverage Jesus. He won't be leveraged. <laughs> it's simply Him, and He is enough." I'm learning that. It's been a hard. It's been a hard uh, learning, but it's, I'm learning that. Second idea is this. Jesus is and always will be for all ethnic groups, all of them. Um, I love that he talks about a light for revelation to the Gentiles. I cannot imagine having Simeon's and Anna's experiences and not being tarnished and bigoted and prejudiced towards people who don't look like me and have my same skin color. I cannot imagine that. I cannot imagine looking at, that, at the horrors that they saw and having as pure a heart as Simeon did. How did he pull this off? Well, he was probably way more spiritual than all of us. No, not in the sense we're thinking. Simeon wasn't jaded by the sufferings of his people. That's not, that doesn't mean he didn't hurt, he hurt. But he wasn't jaded. And I'm going to encourage you with something that I think that uh, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure won't sell. If we sold teaching CDs here, um, uh, I'm pretty sure it wouldn't sell very many. I'm going to tell you something that will not be shocking to you or surprising. It will not be an, an enlightening new thought. But it's clear by looking at the life of Simeon and Anna that they were people of prayer and people of the word. And if we don't set our sights on becoming people of prayer and people of the word we are not going to know what it's like to experience the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And rather, rather the consequence of that is going to be having a toxic, poisonous heart that is jaded, that is bigoted, that is ugly. Remember, he pulled Mary aside. He said the thoughts and intents of people's hearts are going to be exposed by Jesus. The thoughts and intents are going to be exposed. And then finally, our glory is to bring Jesus to every person who hasn't yet seen him. That's our glory. That's our glory. That's our glory. I was talking to a couple in our church, a beautiful couple. We had a three-hour breakfast this last week, and I just heard story after story, and man, I was so encouraged leaving there man, they're, like, they're, they're thanking me for encouraging them. I'm like, man, would you be my pastor, you know? Which, um, and recently they were connected to a Syrian refugee family here in Memphis. If you're a zealot, it's like, whoa, don't go there. Don't go there. I can't imagine being a zealot and then hearing Jesus tell a story about the good Samaritan. Whew, man. I'm telling you, if we if we were living in Palestine 2,000 years ago, Jesus would blow up our politics, every person in this room. Every person in this room. Mercilessly. <laughs> they were connected to this family through World Relief. And um, it's an organization here, uh, a global organization, but Memphis has a, as an office, and they work with refugee families here in Memphis. And these people are extremely poor. Well, they go to their house when they get connected with them, And uh, they're speaking in their own broken Arabic to try to communicate with this family because they don't know English. And this family makes a spread for them. This family is very poor. They make a spread for them. They gave them homemade baklava, a massive, a massive plate. If you've never had baklava, that's some some good stuff. Um, And it's fat-free, too, which is great. Um, (laughs) They gave them multiple desserts. They laid out tabbouleh, this wonderful Arabic salad, which is a Middle Eastern salad, which is so good. Um, They served them each three pieces of fruit. And And the woman of the family was so delighted when she laid this fruit in front of them. It was such an honor for her to feed them this fruit. They gave them each a can of their own Mountain Dew. They were so pleased to hand a can of Mountain Dew to each one. And then they made them this wonderful, probably bitter and dark Middle Eastern coffee that will keep you awake for three days after that. And, uh, but good coffee, man, so good. And, uh, uh, and then they told us, they said, life's been really hard. They said, then we had them over for dinner on Friday night and asked them what their favorite American food was. And they said, we don't know. We don't know. This is our first time to come to an American house. They've been living here for a year in the U.S. People who don't know Jesus... And take politics, throw it over there for a minute. Who cares how they got here? That's not, I'm not a politician. That's not what I'm concerned about. I represent Jesus. And if they are in our neck of the woods, they are our neighbors. And we are called to love them. We're called to love them. Amen? 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 Amen. Amen. That's right. If they are our neighbor, we are called to love them. A Pharisee once asked Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? Let me off the hook with them. She's like, uh-uh, everybody's your neighbor. And they also said, we are so tired of being called refugees. We're Americans now. Well, what I love is that now uh, they are now going to work with this family and teach them English. And I'm like, wow, how beautiful. What if, rather than being scared of refugees all the time, oh, refugees, 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 oh, rather than doing that, because that works really well, you know. Uh, w- what if rather than reinforcing the stereotype of ourselves as being hateful, resistant, anti-Muslim, what if we made relationships, built friendships with these people, and love them and serve them? And I'll be honest with you, and led them to Jesus, that being the agenda. <laughs> but, but to love them and serve them, and to be with them where they are. The same guy who saw the Romans crucify 2,000 people in one day said, God, I'm so glad that they get to be saved. I'm so glad they get to know Jesus. This is the heart that God wants to cultivate in all of us. That's a shocking illustration. I used to hold back on those. Then I started reading the gospels again. I'm like, well, Jesus didn't hold back on those. So why should I? And, uh, So Merry Christmas. Uh, (laughs) Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you that 2,000 years ago, you came to broken Palestine. You came to occupied Israel. And you came in the context of millions of people who had been abused. And you came in the context of thousands and thousands of military abusers. And you stepped into a political nightmare. And your message was believe in me, trust in me, make peace, love one another, bless those who persecute you, love your enemies. God, I pray that every one of us here, no matter what our story is, we would remember that you are good, you are merciful. And there is nothing that we've done that is so bad that can keep us from, from experiencing your mercy and your grace. Lord, your word says that where sin abounds, and the original language actually says where sin super, where sin abounds, grace super abounds. God, help us. Help us to trust you, to not live in fear and anxiety, but to really trust in you and live for you so that all nations can hear of your goodness and your love in Jesus' name. Amen. My friends, I hope you have a Jesus-filled and glorious Christmas. And I know there are a few of you here right now that you're suffering. You've lost loved ones recently. And I hope that in the middle of your Christmas season, you would take a moment and honor your dead by feeling and experiencing your hurt and your sadness but also experience the hope and the joy of the resurrection in Jesus. Grace to you. Amen.